please stay tuned to the end of this program or see the show notes for important information regarding today's speakers and the content of this podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we'll be reviewing three articles from the January-February 2022 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals of allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about CME credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to college.acaai.org publications allergywatch. And also, make sure you check out our ACAAI community on DocMatter, where we can continue the conversation about these articles today. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor at Emory University, an assistant editor of Algae Watch, and the co-host of Algae Talk. Today, once again, I'm joined by Dr. Stan Feynman. Hello, everybody, and I'm glad to be here, and I look forward to another great discussion. And uh, I'm now the... Uh, past president of the college, and I'm in practice in Atlanta Allergy and Asthma, and I'm the uh, editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. And for the third chair, we want to announce that for this and future episodes, we are going to introduce you to each of the Allergy Watch assistant editors who work so hard in scouring the literature in allergy immunology and bringing you the most interesting articles in every issue. So today, we are joined by Dr. Anthony Montanaro from Oregon Health and Science University. Tony, welcome to Algae Talk. Please tell the audience a little about yourself and your history with the publication. Thanks, Jerry, and thanks, Stan. Nice to be with you. It's a privilege. I think this is a great idea. I'm a huge podcast guy, so this resonates very well with me. Yeah, I'm a professor of medicine at Oregon Health Sciences University in the beautiful city of Portland, Oregon, and I've been there for I hate to admit it, for 40 years. I've actually been almost half of that time with Allergy Watch. And Allergy Watch actually started with a little conversation at Bud Bardana's house over some homemade pizzas. And we all thought that Bud's idea was fantastic. And we launched with some help from the college and with some generous support from industry. And I think it's been a home run ever since. That's absolutely fantastic. And again, we're expanding into other media, which is fantastic. And I think a real service for our membership. But I can't help but what you mentioned before, that you're a podcast fan. I'm always looking for tips. So uh, <laughs> what are you listening to and what do you typically recommend on the podcast side? I'm a big Michael Lewis fan. He has a podcast called Against the Rules, which I listen to fairly religiously. I also really like Ezra Klein, who's a New York Times columnist who's very erudite about everything. He talks about education, politics, healthcare. And I've just recently been getting into this one called Hidden Brain, which is a neurosciences. Really good stuff. I mean, it's wonderful to listen to the insights of all these smart people around the world. I'm a regular for Head and Brain, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> but I'm going to check out the other two that you mentioned. <laughs> no, I definitely will check it out, too. Okay, well, let's get started. Tony, I'm looking for our discussion. You selected an article that reminds us about those dual packs for epinephrine. So why don't you tell us about it? I selected the article because I really think it's an important issue. I don't think any of us would argue with the concept that anaphylaxis is one of the most important things that we care for as allergists. And this paper that was published in Jack Eye at the end of last year 
is entitled the multiple use of multiple epinephrine doses in anaphylaxis. And this is from Patel and colleagues in the UK. And they point out that multiple previous guidelines had suggested that all patients with a history of anaphylaxis carry a two-pack. This is particularly true in Europe. Some of the US society guidelines had limited that recommendation to those individuals with anaphylaxis who were at risk. Unfortunately, these at-risk individuals were not well-defined. And so they, the authors tried to look into this problem as who is at risk. Previous studies have suggested the need for a second dose of anaphylaxis to be anywhere from zero to 30%. So it's a pretty, pretty wide range in that recommendation. And so in order to really answer that question, these authors who represented the Heart Lung Institute in the UK undertook a meta-analysis, as we normally do, to look at big problems with big databases. They did a systematic review of the literature, and they looked at the literature from a colossal time frame of 1946 to 2020, and they identified over 36,000 cases of anaphylaxis that met the criteria that had been previously established by the NAIE. They had uh, about 86 studies that addressed only food and venom. Only 20 of these studies were prospective, and only 20 utilized challenges to verify their diagnosis. So in the end, they included 76 of the 86 studies that they looked at, and they identified that 50 of those were extremely low risk of bias. They limited their analysis to studies that were published after 2006, even though they looked at the literature to back in the 40s. And the first thing they identified is something that we've seen frequently in the literature, and that is, uh, very sadly, only 50% of those established cases of anaphylaxis had received epinephrine. But they did find that multiple doses of epi were used in about 7.7% of all cows anaphylaxis, and 7% when you limited that those cases in cases where the patient had received epinephrine by a healthcare provider. As previous studies had shown, about 11% of the reactions were due to foods, 17% or 50% more were due to insects. And they also pointed out that over three doses were needed in about 3.5% of cases where epinephrine was administered. So the authors concluded that this is a very significant number of patients, being the 7, 7.7% or close to 8%, a very significant number that, should, that really should help us inform the future public health care recommendations surrounding the use of multiple doses of anaphylaxis. In the Allergy Watch comment section, our esteemed Dr. Lee points, reminds us really that allergists need to remind patients to carry two of unexpired epinephrine, and to instruct patients on recognizing early signs of anaphylaxis in which epinephrine can be most helpful, and to administer as early as possible, and specifically to avoid subcutaneous administration or deltoid administration. So I think that the questions that remain from my standpoint is, who really is at risk? Previous studies had clearly identified that for subsequent doses of anaphylaxis, that children, male gender, asthmatics, and patients who were experiencing venom reactions had been at risk. Well, I don't know the literature very well, but given the fact that it's 
7.7%, I would say that we really should be creating a healthcare environment where patients don't feel barriers due to cost or other financial considerations for something that's potentially life-saving. So I guess we could consider ways that we could maybe be more selective, but I don't know. I'm, I still feel that given the gravity of anaphylaxis, a universal recommendation at this point should be fully executed. I don't know how you feel about that, Stan. Jerry, I totally agree with you. I do think that especially this sort of this study does kind of confirm that our recommendations to carry two doses is appropriate. I mean, these patients are at risk for anaphylaxis and they need to have appropriate treatment. They may not need to use the second dose that often. In fact, we teach the residents that the earlier you administer the epinephrine when they're starting to have a reaction, the less likely that they might have a more severe reaction and the less likely that they might need a second dose of epa. Some of the other studies have kind of confirmed that. This study, I guess, Tony, didn't really address the timing of the doses in relationship to the onset of the anaphylaxis, because sometimes you can predict with that. No, I think you bring up a really good point, Stan, that the study didn't address the timing, nor did they address the dose. And as you know, in the UK and various countries in Europe, they use 0.5 as their recommended dose in adults. And I think it's very clear, at least from the studies that have been done, that it's less likely to need a second dose or a continual dose of epinephrine if you use an aggressive dose early. So that's one issue. The other issue in terms of cost, I, I personally don't believe that there's really any good reason other than cost for all patients with anaphylaxis to carry a two-pack or two separate epinephrine auto-injectors. One of the interesting things that patients bring up to me all the time is cost. And I do review with them the fact that there's very good literature showing that outdated epinephrine works. And I don't know what the practical take-home from that is. Is that should we recommend that all of us suggest outdated epis? I don't think we have a medical legal off-ramp for that. What I do is I tell them that if it's less than six months out of date, it's okay to use it. But I do worry medical legally because that does potentially put you at risk. I mean, I hate to use the shared decision-making <laughs> concept here, but we're informing the patients what we know, that you wouldn't throw it away or not use it in an emergency but we have to recognize you're not getting the full dose. And so we are recommending the full dose. And so they understand what that means. And so it's definitely better than nothing, but at the same time, we're gonna want them to always be protected with the best possible medication. And then again, we have to advocate for our patients. And also we know that class action lawsuit, we can't get companies fleecing our patients in order to get the medicine that they need, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's the issue. And I think we have to be honest that the studies really show that after a year, it's over 95% effective. So it's not like we're telling people that we're taking 50% of the dose. But again, I don't think there's a practical way to interpret that data. I think that we don't really have a soft medical legal landing. I think we have to tell patients to use up-to-date epinephrine auto-injectors. I wish they were less expensive. There was an interesting experiment that was published out of Children's Hospital in Seattle, where they attempted to come up with these kind of homemade epinephrine kits. And what they found, and it basically had a $3 vial of epinephrine, an alcohol wipe, the needle, and the injector. And basically what they found was 50% of the time, patients wouldn't use them. So, I mean, I think that the value of the auto-injector has been pretty clearly established. Well, even that's the case. I remember when my fellows did a QI project, just 
asking patients if they're comfortable using the auto injector. And you'd be surprised. There's a very significant percentage, even if you come back and follow up and they've had the injector for years, you ask them straight up, do you feel comfortable using it? They'll say no, and they would want retraining. And so believe it or not, I've incorporated that into my workflow on my Epic template. Like every time they come in, I ask, do you have one? Is it unexpired? And do you feel comfortable using it? And I do get people who say no, and they've had the prescription for years. So it's an issue, even if it was not just a vial and a syringe. I think you're right, Jerry. A lot of people are hesitant to use it. They're scared of the needle. Uh, what I've done is I've collected unused, expired epinephrine auto-injectors, and I give them to patients and tell them, go home and put it in an orange and sit around the table so everybody can see what it sounds like, what it feels like into an orange. So hopefully that helps them to feel more comfortable. But you're right. There's a big pushback. Okay. Well, this is a great discussion. And again, speaking about reactions, Stan, you know, we get a lot of patients worried about the COVID vaccine and sometimes they want reassurance like testing. So I guess we have some studies analyzing whether testing is useful. Well, you're right. And of course, everybody remembers that when the vaccines first came out back in December of 20, the very first group of patients who had the vaccine, received the vaccine, were healthcare workers in England. And two of them had reactions and happened to have had their epinephrine auto-injectors and self-administered them. So the allergy community, we got very concerned about it. And there were some task forces set up and there were basically, we worried about the excipients and there was recommendations to do skin testing for the excipients, especially the PEG, the polyethylene glycol and polysorbate 80. Of course, in the mRNA vaccines, it was the PEG that was one of the excipients. And so we worried about that. And there was a lot of literature in that time in the early 2021 about using it. We did it in our practice. So there was so much question about it that this group basically did a study where they looked at patients who had a history of reactions. And this was published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology in Practice. It was published in September of 2021. It was entitled First Dose MRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Allergic Reactions. Uh, Wolfson was the first author, and Banerjee was the last author. Banerjee was one of the ones who was instrumental in coming up with the recommendations for doing the skin tests. And what they did is they analyzed 80 patients who had reported allergic reactions to the first dose of the mRNA COVID vaccine. Patients were, there were 71 were women and nine were men. The mean age was 41 years old. Reactions were immediate in 65 patients and were delayed in 15 patients, and they all underwent excipient skin testing to PEG and, when appropriate, also polysorbate. The recommendations as to the second dose of the vaccine were guided by the skin test results and also the phenotype of the initial reactions. So the skin test results were positive to one or more excipients in 18% of the patients with PEG positive in 5 and polysorbate positive in 12 and 70 patients proceeded with their second dose of the mRNA vaccine. And of these, 89% had no reaction or a mild reaction that was managed just with antihistamines. Two of the patients did receive epinephrine treatment for the second dose, and skin tests were negative in both of those cases. So it's very confusing. And three of the patients had positive results on intradermal testing with PEG, and they all tolerated the second dose of COVID-19 vaccine. 
Polysorbate testing was used with these refreshed tears and it caused a lot of irritant reactions. We saw a lot of irritant reactions when we were doing skin testing with that. So the conclusions of this group was that the excipient skin testing does not appear useful in evaluating patients who react to the first dose of the mRNA COVID vaccine, and that most patients can proceed with their second dose without skin testing, and that obviously further studies for PEG skin testing is needed in some of these patients. So Dr. Oppenheimer made the comment here that in the allergy watch was that Wolfson and colleagues found that the majority of patients with reported immediate reaction to their first dose of the vaccine were able to tolerate the second regardless of skin testing. So he cites that, well, it's a quickly evolving literature. Now, in the same journal article in September of 21, Matt Greenhout was the lead author of an editorial that basically said that this is definitive, this study is definitive, and that we absolutely do not need to do skin testing, that it's not justified when viewed through an evidence-based lens. And quite frankly, the minute we saw these in our practice, we stopped doing skin testing. And I don't think there's any point in doing it. In fact, interestingly, I just saw that there was a surveillance of patients getting the third dose now. It was in the Journal of the AMA just this week, showing that patients might have had some mild reaction, but basically they tolerated it without a problem. So the biggest problem I see in my practice is basically people have pushed back against even getting a vaccine. So I think we need to teach them and instruct them and reassure them. And what I've told patients is make sure they're well hydrated, make sure they eat something before they get their vaccine and um, sit and wait about 30 minutes after the vaccine to make sure they don't have any problem. I was very happy to see this article as you were so we could stop doing excipient testing I think we actually started a clinic because we had such a need for these patients. They were all getting funneled to the university. I'm sure you've seen the same thing. And we looked at our first 50 patients that we saw, and we were able to administer, safely administer a second dose to 49 out of 50. And the 50th required did not require epinephrine, but only required an antihistamine. As you know, most of these cases are associated not with excipient reactions, but with underlying anxiety. And I try to be very forthright with the patients in explaining that these anxiety reactions are very real and they're very significant to both us and to them. I also sometimes just parenthetically tell them, this is a time where I like to take my doctor hat off and put my grandpa hat on and just talk frankly about the situation. But it's been a big problem. And the risk-benefit ratio far favors the benefit of the vaccine. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of rare events get amplified and they get publicized, especially something like vaccination and a lot of the things that, as you know, surrounded the COVID vaccination. And so I think when you create an environment like that, it does influence your preconceptions when receiving the vaccine. And I think that's very challenging for all of us to again, challenge some of the informations out there that a lot of our patients are receiving. Though, again, we have good evidence that of all the data sources, patients still think of their own personal doctor as the most important source of information. So again, I think that is our role of allergists. We are a very important expert data source. And again, we provide the safe environment for them to do that so that they feel protected not only from the virus, but also from any potential reactions. And so, again, I think that also shows our value, what we contribute, and how we help the pandemic. 
But absolutely, you're right. I think certainly we're going to do the studies to convince ourselves that if something's effective or not, and this is why we're a very scientific field and investigational to make sure we're not doing unnecessary testing. Yeah, I mean, it's important to stay evidence-based, and as long as you do that, we're on the right track. In terms of excipients, I think it's really important to point out to patients how ubiquitous polyethylene glycol is. I think a lot of patients had the fear that polyethylene glycol was added in large amounts to this because of this new vaccine, when in fact it's been in thousands of foods and medications for a long time. And a lot of them who've taken Miralax are surprised when you tell them that they're ingesting gram amounts of this stuff as opposed to microgram amounts in the vaccine. Yeah, I've invoked the same, have you ever had Miralax question? And yeah. that's very simple to like blow that out of the water. So that was very useful. Okay, well, let me wrap it up. So the last article I chose was published in the Annals, and the title of the article is Differences in Oral Food Challenge Reaction Severity Based on Increasing Age in a Pediatric Population. And this was the lead author with Katie Kennedy. But there's sort of a data report from two institutions, Shilms Hospital Philadelphia and Vanderbilt. And the real reason for the study, at least the motivation, is the anxiety about early introduction of allergens to infants. And we now have very, very strong evidence for peanut based on the learning early about peanut study and decent evidence for egg and emerging evidence for other foods that earlier introduction at a window of time during the developing immune system, if you get allergenic food early enough into infants, in that window period, you can prevent food allergy. And despite you telling that to a mother or father or caregiver with a new baby, there's anxiety about food allergies, there's concerns, there's the misinterpretation of eczema or other symptoms that are non-IG-mediated being triggered by the food. And so inevitably, that leads to requests for testing, that leads for delayed introduction. And again, that puts a challenge and potentially increases risk of food allergy as we delay introduction. So this article cites a previous study we discussed on Allergy Talk, where Australia has been very successful in early induction of peanut, and that is through education by maternal and child health nurses who have gone out and given advice to new mothers, and they were able to get 90% of infants to eat peanut in the first year of life with about a 4% reaction rate, mainly cutaneous, maybe like one very few patients with lower respiratory symptoms, but, but no serious adverse reactions despite 90% introduction. But despite this, we still need more reassuring data to give to our parents about early introduction. So what they did is they looked at all the orange food challenges in their two institutions over a three-year period, this ended up being 746 reactions during food challenges. The majority of them were done at Children's House of Philadelphia. That was 91%. About 9% came from Vandy. They were mostly male patients around average of six years of age. And they had some toddlers and infants. About 4% were infants and about 18% were toddlers. About 59% had atopic dermatitis. Peanut obviously was the most common food that was challenged. One thing I did think was interesting, that was 19% of the reactions had something we would consider maybe more severe like cardiovascular, lower respiratory, 
laryngeal or neurologic, but 59% of the reactions were treated with epinephrine in this study. Now, if, you, if we kind of read between the lines, the second organ system I didn't mention was probably gastrointestinal, though I don't know. But I would say 59% of the reaction being treated with epinephrine was a pretty high number. That being said, when they look at the relationship between the age of the patient and the reactions, those four organ systems I mentioned, cardiovascular, neurologic, lower respiratory, or laryngeal, 10% of the infants and toddlers had those systems involved, but that goes up to 23% for younger children, 22% for older children, and 19% for adolescents. So clearly it was those systems were least involved in the lower patients, and there was less epinephrine administered to the infants. Now, again, keeping in mind that 59% of the reactions were treated with epinephrine, the infants and toddlers had 47% of the reactions treated with epinephrine versus 61, 62, and 67 in the young, older, and adolescent populations. Now, in terms of actual lower respiratory or other serious symptoms in infants specifically, there was only one toddler who had wheezing. Otherwise, they were not any of those four categories I mentioned. So that sort of drove up the toddler reaction rate, though we have to admit there wasn't a lot of toddlers in the study. Overall, though, the statistical analysis does show there is a relationship between the age of the patient and reaction severity, implying that younger children, especially around the time that we would be introducing solid foods and we're trying to encourage early introduction, would be expected to have mild reactions and would not necessarily have the severity that the parents are concerned about. Not saying no rash would occur, but actually the severity of that reaction would be considered amenable to be done, even without testing. Because again, the Australian study I noted did not do testing before introduction, which I note is in contrast to US guidelines. But again, most international organizations have not recommended testing before introduction because of the lack of allergies. And again, the high false positive rate of testing. So we're continuing to think about this. How do we best communicate with families, provide reassurance, but also implement something that actually has pretty good evidence now to really change how we approach infant feeding and overcoming some of the stigma and concern about peanut under high allergenic foods in children? So, you know, I've been really a little reluctant to do oral food challenges in the young children and infants, mainly because it's hard to communicate with them. And this article obviously is very reassuring. In fact, Vivian Hernandez-Tuillo, who is the Allergy Watch assistant editor, made her comment that says this article reassures us that the youngest children had fewest, fewer reactions required less epinephrine compared to older children. So I think that we should consider challenges in the younger children too. Yeah, it's interesting. I just told someone and, and someone asked me the question of, do you have any regrets over what you've done in your career? And I said, I really didn't, that I've had a wonderful career. Not that it's done, but the one thing that I should have done more is oral food challenges. I really think that as you say, the evidence is quite has become really overwhelming that early introduction does make a difference. And we have to do early introduction in an informed and safe way. And there's no way of doing it without oral food challenges. If not for the lighthearted, having been around now younger colleagues in the clinic, you have to be willing and able to treat anaphylaxis. And I think a lot of us who are risk averse 
we try to avoid having any situations in the office where you do have the possibility of anaphylaxis, but you have to be willing and able to treat anaphylaxis in order to do the right thing here. It's interesting that we do get referrals from even other allergy practices about these infant and toddler challenges because of the concern about communications and this lack of comfort levels. But actually, it would be sort of the opposite, really. Like, if you wanted to do a safe challenge, you're going to want a younger child, interestingly, which is counterintuitive. So again, my hope is that as we have more practitioners be comfortable and either recommending early introduction or doing challenges in younger infants for the anxious parents, we're able to help improve early introduction, prevent delay. Because again, referral to an allergist, referral to this or going to an academic institution to get a challenge, those are all delays. And again, the window gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So this is a work in progress. I guess I'm going to plug my own thing. We have a QI project going on right now in the Atlanta area, trying to talk to empower pediatricians to have these conversations with families, work in progress. But again, it's parental concern and it's anxiety. And we really have, it's really not the knowledge, it's the implementation. How do we do the messaging? How do we provide reassurance? And then the resources that the parent feels safe, feels confident, and then they feel supported either through a referral or just really clear instructions and good data showing that it is a lower risk procedure than previously thought. So that'll wrap up our first podcast with our new rotating system. So if you liked what you heard, please rate our podcast on iTunes. And we are always willing to hear your feedback, corrections, or suggestions. The email to send your feedback is allergytalkoneword at acaai.org. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Stan. And thank you for listening. We'll hear you next time. The ACAAI is presenting this podcast for educational purposes only. It is not medical advice or intended to replace the judgment of a licensed physician. The college is not responsible for any claims related to the procedures, professionals, products, or methods discussed in the podcast, and it does not approve or endorse any products, professionals, services, or methods that may be referenced. Today's speakers have the following disclosures. Dr. Lee has nothing to disclose. Dr. Montanaro has done research with AstraZeneca, Regeneron, Theravance, and Teva, and Dr. Feynman has been a speaker for Takeda and has done research for AIMU, DBV, BioChrist, and Novartis.